Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. So this episode has a fun backstory. In March 2019, episode 96 guest, Dr. Julia Evolvi, emailed to invite me to join her and a group of researchers from Ruhr University Bauckham's Center for Religious Studies. They were visiting Niagara Falls, New York, which is only about 20 miles from my home. So that day I joined them, and we had a fantastic walk around the state park during a severe cold snap in western New York and southern Ontario. And that day I met a, the guest for this episode, Dr. Marin Freudenberg, a colleague of Dr. Evolvi's. While we walked, we talked about each other's research interests, and Dr. Freudenberg shared she researches charismatic religions. I invited her on the show back in March, and I'm delighted to release this episode, which was made possible by a cold and gorgeous walk to the lip of American Falls, Bridal Veil Falls, and Horseshoe Falls. Dr. Freudenberg is a research associate at the Center for Religious Studies at Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany, and she is also the associate editor of the journal Entangled Religions. So the rise of charismatic religious practice is something I've been following and observing for some time now. With its emphasis on the physical and emotional experience of the Holy Spirit, charismatic Christianity is the most rapidly growing strain within Christianity worldwide. This episode of Classical Ideas explores a charismatic organization called the Vineyard Movement, This episode weaves together Dr. Freudenberg's main areas of academic interest, which are Pentecostal charismatic religions in Germany and Switzerland, American evangelicalism, and theories of charisma in religion. We discuss the backstory of the Vineyard Movement, its spread across the world, the similarities and differences between the Vineyard in the USA compared to the German-speaking countries of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, and also Freudenberg's role and important challenges as a researcher seeking to portray an accurate academic representation of a very internally diverse group. So you can find a direct link to the article under discussion and a link to Dr. Marin Freudenberg's website in the show notes. Furthermore, you can follow the great work coming out of the Center for Religious Studies at Ruhr University Bauckham at twitter.com slash C-E-R-E-S underscore R-U-B. You can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation on charismatic religion and the vineyard movement with Dr. Marin Freudenberg. Dr. Marin Freudenberg, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you, Greg, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, um, I'm so glad to have you. I'm so glad that uh, you could come on the show specifically because we met several months ago at Niagara Falls with doc- with our friend, our mutual friend, Dr. Julia Evolvi, friend of the podcast as well. So it's really yes. great to have you on as well, Dr. Froden. Thank, thank you so much. And I'm glad that Julia introduced us and she's told me uh, the best things about working with you on your podcast. She was happy to contribute to that as well. Fantastic. Well, can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Yes, um, and please do call me Marin. No uh, need for the for the degree popping up here and there. <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, yeah, so um, I work at the uh, university, uh, the Ruhr University in Bochum in Germany, and I work at the Center for the Study of Religions, the Ceres, which is Germany's, one of Germany's largest centers for the um, social scientific study of religions. Um, and I am um, a researcher and a teacher, a lecturer there. And my in my research, I focus on Pentecostal charismatic Christianity, uh, particularly in the German-speaking countries of Europe, and particularly those charismatic groups that kind of came across from the U.S. or that are developing here organically within the landscape but are orienting themselves towards American um, role models or examples. Excellent. So... I'm kind of curious what led you on this path. Um, why do you think that you initially got interested in religion as a possible career path? Like even dating back to like your undergraduate or high school days or whatever, how did you come to be doing this job? Absolutely. High school days. Um, that's, uh, that's kind of a good, um, keyword there. Um, in my junior year of high school, I did an exchange year. Um, I was living in Berlin in Germany at the time, and um, I went to Wisconsin, to Spooner, Wisconsin, for, I think, 11 months um, for high school exchange. And the family that I was placed with, um, the parents were both Lutheran pastors. So I kind of, um, for the first time in my life, got insights into Lutheran life. Um, we went to worship weekly. Um, I wasn't um, a religious person then. I'm still not today. Uh, but this experience with this Lutheran family that I'm still very close with up to this day uh, really raised my interest in American religion. Um, and because we kept in touch and we started um, kind of a long, ongoing conversation about the how American faith is changing, um, I decided later on to write a dissertation on mainline Protestantism. So I took the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, as an, as an empirical example, as a case study. Um, and that's how I became interested uh, in this topic of religion, particularly from a sociological angle. So um, I have a degree in sociology with a focus on North American studies and religious studies. Excellent. Okay. So we're here today to specifically talk about a new article that you have, and the article is called Dynamics and Stability in Globally Expanding Charismatic Religions. And then the subtitle is The Case of the Vineyard Movement in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. So I'm hoping we can get a little bit of vocabulary cleared up. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely. Very important. Excellent. So for anybody who's listening who may not be aware, what would you call or how would you describe a charismatic religion? Okay, so um, a religion is charismatic in its self-understanding when it refers to the transformative role of the Holy Spirit, transformative role that the Holy Spirit has in the everyday lives of believers. So um, there's um, different gifts of the Holy Spirit that people believe um, uh, become evident uh, in them, and that's the Holy Spirit working through them. For instance, um, speaking in tongues, glossolalia, or uh, being able to, to discern um, what others are saying when they speak in tongues. Um, uh, there's uh, different 
examples of other gifts of the Holy Spirit, for instance, prophecy, for instance, healing. So all of these ideas play a big role in the self-understanding of certain groups that can be largely grouped. Kind of the umbrella term would be Pentecostal charismatic. Okay. So the terms that you just sort of mentioned, um, glossolalia and more, are these things that would be described as charismata is that kind of what it's what it's what that group of like activities or actions is kind of classified as yes yeah, so it goes back to um uh several um instances instances sorry in the bible where um uh, there are reports of um the charismata the holy spirit pouring itself out onto believers and then becoming manifest in these charismata. So it's a physical and emotional experience of the Holy Spirit, uh, kind of in a nutshell. Okay. So I'm speaking to you from Western New York. I grew up in Missouri, which I know you're really familiar with. And I'm curious if somebody were to visit a typical American charismatic congregation in 2019, what they might see uh, throughout the course of a like a service? Okay, that's a good question. And I'll um, kind of zoom in from a broader perspective to become a little more clear and precise and give people hopefully a better idea. So um, there is no such thing as a typically charismatic uh, congregation because charismatic is a really broad term. In a nutshell, what we have um, is I've mentioned the the Pentecostal charismatic Christianity. We've got um, a timeline um, starting in the early 20th century, classical Pentecostalism is cropping up in different places around the world, including in North America, but also, for instance, in Korea, also, for instance, in India. Here we've got classical charismata playing a big role in um, worship services, for instance. Uh, fast forward from the beginning of the 20th century to the 1960s, we've got the charismatic renewal movement, also part of this Pentecostal charismatic Christianity, and that renewal movement um, occurred primarily in the Catholic Church, also, however, some Lutheran and Reformed churches. Now, the churches that I look at, the Vineyard Movement in particular, they're what is called the third wave after classical Pentecostalism and the Charismatic Renewal Movement, which cropped up the third wave in the 1980s. And what we have, I like to call them neo-charismatic congregations, are congregations that emphasize spirit baptism, signs and wonders, um, that emphasize kind of a more subdued form of um, charismatic Christianity, um, where Spirit exorcism doesn't, for instance, play as big of a role as it might in some Pentecostal congregations. The charismata are there. They play a role. uh, However, um, like I said, a subdued role in comparison to classical Pentecostalism. So just just to offer that as as, um, as a definition. Excellent. I love the clarification that there's no such thing as like a typical uh, charismatic congregation. That's, I think, a really important distinction. But you you did mention the specific one that we're going to dive into here a little more closely, and that is the Vineyard Movement. So I have a few questions about the Vineyard Movement. Um, How did it begin? Where did it begin? What is it? Uh, Very good questions. How did it begin? Um, It began with, 
Well, maybe let's start with what is the vineyard, give you a, an example of a typical uh, worship service, just so listeners can get an idea of what we're talking about. And then maybe we can talk about the history a little bit to give it some context. Perfect. So um, a typical vineyard worship service, say in the U.S., lots of internal diversity, but just kind of to the, the uh, lowest common denominator, uh, worship there is um, there's a lot of music. Music plays a big role. So it'll be Christ- contemporary Christian music, a lot of it contemplative, Christian rock also, but kind of um, more sensual, subdued, contemplative music. Uh, music plays a big part of the service. Um, then, um, we've got, um, pastors. They're usually male. Some, there's also some female pastors who will give a long sermon that delves closely into the biblical text. So it'll be a different, uh, part of the Bible that is, um, read closely, uh, every Sunday. And then the pastor will give advice on what that, um, part of the Bible, the verses um, that have been read, mean in the everyday lives of congregants. Um, the important thing about this worship service is that it um, offers community to all of the members, right? Regardless of the size of the church, it can be a church of 30 congregants, it can be a church of 2,000 congregants, depending on the congregation. People come together to um, sing, to relax, um, and to use this contemplative music to kind of get in t- tune with um, with God and with Jesus. They believe that God and Jesus speaks to them through not only the biblical verses, but also through the music and through the communal fellowship. Okay. So let's dive yes. in a little bit to the history of the movement. Um, where is it from? It's from Southern California. Um, there's two um, co-founders. Um, one is John Wimber. He's the better known one. Um, the other is called Ken Gullickson. Um, John Wimber, um, this is in the 1970s. Um, he was married and he was uh, playing in a jazz band, but he had problems. He was into alcohol and, and his marriage was in trouble. Um, and he found a Quaker community and started um, experiencing um, um, faith physically for the first time in this Quaker community. Um, he then later um, joined a, a church called Calvary Chapel before, um, together with Ken Gullickson, forming the Vineyard. So it goes back to Southern California. It comes out of the 1960s even. So we've got Jesus people, um, we've got um, jazz music, um, and we've got um, this communal lifestyle that people are seeking to live and to also live um, um, in religious community as well. Didn't you say in the article that Wimber was a member of the Righteous Brothers too? Exactly. Exactly. That's the jazz band that he's known for. Yep. Excellent. Okay. So why did they call it the Vineyard? Is there a specific reason for the name itself? Yeah, it goes back um, to a saying that Jesus um, is quoted with in the Bible, I am the vine. Um, And so the Vineyard is um, all of Jesus' children, right? That's That's the metaphor behind it. Excellent. Okay, so now what I want to know is something that you're uh, a specialist in is how does the vineyard spread from its original home in California to be, become more of a global movement? Yeah. 
That's exactly what I'm interested in. And the answer that I would give in a nutshell is relationships. So it's not top down. People aren't kind of sent abroad uh, missionary um, to be missionaries. Um, but um, if I take, and the um, story is different for every vineyard association, but if I take the German speaking association as an example, so um, how did vineyard Deutschland, Österreich, Schweiz, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland come to be? Um, the founder of vineyard Dach, that's the abbreviation. Okay. Um, um, the founder of Vineyard Dach, um, he met Wimber when he was traveling in the U.S. And he was so impressed by him. And he was leading a church with his wife uh, in Switzerland that he wanted to associate this church officially integrated into the Vineyard movement. So over a process of years, they met, I think, in the mid-80s and then in the early 90s. Um, this church in, in Bern in Switzerland was officially um, became a vineyard church uh, and then started from Bern to expand in the German-speaking countries of Europe. And that happened through that connection between Martin Buhmann, the leader of Vineyard Dach, and John Wimber in the U.S. Okay, so before we zoom in on Dach a little more, what are some of the demographics of the vineyard movement right now around the world? Like how widespread is this? How many countries is it in? Things like that. Yeah, so it's on, um, uh, let's see, uh, almost every continent, well, besides Antarctica, every continent, basically. Sure. Um, it's, it's got a self-reported uh, membership of over 300,000 members in over 90 countries. The thing with membership, though, is, I mean, and this is typical for American evangelicalism, there is no such thing as membership. Like, statistics usually don't exist. Um, because membership is understood as a fluid concept, as um, converting, as giving your heart to Christ, and not as something that you sign on a piece of paper. So what we have basically are the self-reported statistics. Internationally, like I said, 300,000 plus members. And for Germany, this would be about um, 10,000 plus um, in 2017. That's my most recent self-reported number out of Vineyard Dach. Okay, how many are in Switzerland and how many are in Austria? Um, the majority of those 10,000, so the 10,000 are for Germany, Switzerland, Austria. The majority are in Germany and in Switzerland. The minority is in Austria. So there's um, noticeably fewer vineyard congregations in Austria. I can't say exactly how, member, how many members in which country because that information just doesn't exist. Some congregations in Germany or Switzerland know how many people worship weekly. Others others just don't know. They don't keep the records on it. So for you, Marin, um, personally, as a researcher and as a scholar and writer, why did you get personally interested in the vineyard movement? Like, what drew you into this to where you knew you had to spend a substantial amount of your career working and writing about this group? Yeah, so when I was working on my dissertation, which I said was on the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, I was looking at contemporary changes occurring um, in that group as a re reaction to the decline that all of the mainline groups are, are um, struggling with in the U.S. Um, and in other countries as well. And I, one of the findings uh, from my di dissertation is that the ELCA is looking to groups like the Vineyard for inspiration on how to change, which innovations to introduce, how to reverse the decline and um, 
um, attract members again because the vineyard is doing well in the U.S. and elsewhere. So that's how I became aware of the vineyard. And then then I looked a little further because I did my research at the um, Graduate School of North American Studies in Berlin. So I came at um, this from a European perspective and I thought, well, if the vineyard is doing so well, what about how is it, what's going on internationally? And then I discovered um, that vineyard Dach is expanding in the German-speaking countries, but there's no research on it at all. No social scientific research, I should say. There's been publications coming out of the church, but no real academic research, um, uh, which is why I decided to focus my postdoc project on this group. Brilliant. You found the gap in the literature. That's fantastic. Okay. Yep. So um, I want to know about specifically about the way these two groups compare and contrast. So we have Vineyard Deutschland, Österreich, and Schweiz, which you have labored under the acronym DACH, D-A-C-H. So you go to great lengths to compare and contrast the American vineyard movement with the German-speaking vineyard movement. So what I want to know a little bit about is uh, first how they are closely in common and how are they most different. So in your article, you have things like organization structure, pastors, theology and beliefs, religious practices, evangelization. Can we talk a little bit about the similarities between these two groups and how if an American familiar with Vineyard here would go there where you are how the, and they went to a Vineyard congregation, how they might feel like they fit in? So what are the commonalities? Yeah, absolutely. So first kind of as a disclaimer, I've kind of mentioned this before, there's a great variety both in the U.S. and in the German-speaking countries, right? So what I'm doing a little bit here is, um, I don't want to call it stereotyping, but I'm generalizing, certainly. And we need to have that if we want to have any social scientific research results to speak of. So we need to um, downplay the differences in order to categorize, right, and to give us something to work with social scientifically. Um, That said, communalities, organizational structure, um, for instance, both Vineyard USA and Vineyard Dach, which isn't just my acronym, by the way, it's the one that they use as well. Okay, good, Um, good, good. Yeah. Um, So both organizational structures are... um, similar in the sense that they're centralized. So they've got a senior leader, and then they've got um, area leaders, and then they've got congregational pastors in the local contexts. Um, However, the different congregations, as I've mentioned, have different degrees of autonomy. And here in the German-speaking context, this is the difference compared to the U.S. Pastors are sometimes more autonomous. They're less bound um, into these regional structures that are very pronounced in the U.S. I think simply because the organization here on this side of the Atlantic is younger um, and there's more... Um, flexibility necessary in order to give it room to grow. So what the senior leader um, that I've been interviewing for the past two and a half years or so has repeatedly been telling me is, we don't want to tell pastors what to do. We want them to figure it out themselves so that they can grow their congregations that we don't nip them in the bud. That would be um, pertaining to organizational structures. To pastors, let's see, um, pastors in the U.S., 
first off, a terminology, pastors um, are called pastors in the U.S. Here in the German-speaking context, they're called leaders. So I want to de-emphasize the hierarchy here, again, I think, um, as an incentive to uh, attract people and and to um, maybe um, provide a contrast to the um, established bureaucratic hierarchical churches that we have in Germany and in Switzerland and in Austria. So pastors in both countries are trained. Um, Vineyard USA has its own training for pastors or sends them to, um, typically sends them to specific evangelical um, seminaries. In Germany, that's different. So pastors here, or leaders as they're called, as I said, are encouraged to go to university and study systematic theology, so study Lutheran theology, study philosophy, um, to get a little bit of a different background than in the U.S. case. Okay. And that impacts that impacts the different theologies and beliefs as well. So Vineyard USA has a fixed statement of faith, for instance. Um, Vineyard Dach, the leader, the senior leader said he doesn't believe in a complete quote-unquote theology, um, and he wants to keep it more open. He wants stimulus from other um, um, disciplines, from other, he wants other perspectives coming in and the leadership training. Excellent. Okay, so do their, uh, do their services, like on an, any typical given Sunday, do the services look relatively similar? Like could an American or a German-speaking person go to different congregations across the Atlantic and have like sort of relatively similar Sunday? Relatively similar, yes. So music plays a big role. Um, this, um, the extended sermon and looking closely at a biblical text plays um, a big role on both sides of the Atlantic. However, my sense, and I have not had a chance yet to um, visit um, very many um, individual congregations spread all over Germany and Switzerland, but my sense is, particularly if it's a small congregation that's still growing, so that was just founded recently a couple of years ago, um, it won't be as um, professionally done, the worship service won't, as is often the case in um, American services. So in the U.S. context, what we often have is um, kind of an auditorium, and there will be a band, um, and um, there will be professional um, lighting and sound systems, um, and it'll be an event for people to go to. Congregations in the German-speaking context aren't that far yet sometimes. Also, their pastors and or the congregants sometimes won't want that kind of a service. They'll want maybe a little bit less of the flashy um, um, and a little bit more of a traditional, a traditional German or traditional Swiss um, worship context, really depending on individual congregations. Okay, cool. So something I found that really interesting is how the German-speaking vineyard movement was more likely to encourage their newer members to stay affiliated with other congregations. So say if a Catholic person in Germany finds the vineyard movement and likes it, the vineyard leadership will encourage that person to stay a part of their original Catholic congregation is that something that is uniquely European in the Vineyard Movement? That's a really good question. Um, so th this is something that I find fascinating, this, this double d membership, quote-unquote, um, if you will, that the Vineyard encourages. Um, I know that, it's, that I have not encountered another 
um, independent evangelical church in the German-speaking context that goes to such lengths to encourage um, ecumenical cooperation, not only with other independent churches, but also with the Catholic and the Lutheran and the Reformed churches. So in Germany and in Switzerland, um, the religious landscape is entirely different compared to the U.S. We've got um, what are basically, in a nutshell, state-backed churches that um, receive um, um, tax money. Um, uh, so that's the Catholic and the Lutheran and the Reformed Church. Um, and then we have groups like the Vineyard who need to, who don't have that kind of state backing, um, who need to garner the support and the resources um, themselves out of the contributions of their membership. Um, so there's an imbalance there, and yet Vineyard Dach uh, is not separatist in its self-identity in the religious landscape, but it's very um, cooperative, right? It's seeking to connect. Why is that the case? I believe, um, from what I've gathered also from my conversations with Vineyard Dach leaders, that the idea behind this is they don't want to steal members um, from existing churches. They want to uh, raise interest on part of these members in the vineyard that they then carry what they learn in the vineyard and what they experience in the vineyard back to their home churches. And then that increases interest there. And that increases the motivation to work together even more closely. So it's less this idea of the vineyard is the one true answer to all of the questions that you have, but it's more, let's work together to figure this out communally. What our interpretations of the Christian faith respective we can give each other? If that makes sense. Absolutely. And you know, as I was reading that, I couldn't help but wonder how the mainstream congregations feel about vineyard members being dual members, um, since it could be interpreted like they're maybe just staying to convince other people of their ways. Do people in the mainstream congregations eventually ask the vineyard members to leave and just go to the vineyard? Um, that would require a close look at the individual cases. I believe um, they wouldn't necessarily go out and do that and say, please leave our church because so many members are leaving that they're happy about every single person who stays, basically. However, the vineyard is met with a substantial amount of suspicion and kind of reluctance to engage with them on part of the mainstream churches because um, there's this... Um, prejudice against them of against all independent churches that aren't state backed of being sects right of being um, conservative evangelical quote-unquote fundamentalist churches that are out to brainwash um, members and to isolate them socially and to turn them away from their families and so on there are of course hardcore conservative churches that do operate according to those logics that do try to isolate individuals and kind of take them out of their social context and um, um, take them into the fold of their conservative beliefs. Churches like the Vineyard are not like that from what I have gathered. As I've said before, I can't speak to every single congregation and congregations do have a lot, a large degree of autonomy. Um, so there are, especially in southern Germany and going into Switzerland, more conservative vineyard congregations that will be adamant on communicating 
more conservative ideas, traditional gender roles, um, traditional family model, and so on. Um, so there, that hesitancy on part of the mainstream churches comes from that. Um, but the um, one example that I've looked at more closely in this regard, which is Vineyard Berlin and Berlin Kupenick. Um, Vineyard Berlin Kupenick is also mem a member of the regional Lutheran Church's body. And the pastor of Vineyard Berlin Kupenick told me that once he started to engage more closely with the regional um, Lutheran um, leader, they figured they discovered they had so many communalities and so many things that um, they felt the same about that it was really a surprise to both of them that they were less different than they thought. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier that there might be some suspicion in the way that new churches that are independent in Germany are viewed. Um, are charismatic religions and churches viewed differently in the U.S. and Europe? Is there like more one place they're more accepted and then one place they're more suspected? Yeah, I think um, charismatic um, practices, including typical Pentecostal practices, the charismata, for instance, they're a lot more accepted in the U.S. because the sorry, the religious landscape there is just more diverse, um, and these um, kind of um, emotional and physical expressions of Christianity um, are more established historically as well. So to have a Pentecostal church in your town and to have people rolling on the floor laughing in a worship service, or um, having people conduct an exorcism or something, isn't as surprising compared in comparison to maybe a more rational religious context um, in Germany or even in Switzerland where that isn't as much part of the history and isn't as much part of the um, religious culture. Um, however, again, and I hate to keep um, emphasizing this, but I just feel like as a disclaimer, I have to, there are these differences, regional differences as well in Germany, for instance. So pietistic strains are more pronounced in the south of Germany. Um, so there maybe it wouldn't be so surprising, depending on kind of the communities that you're in and the people that you associate with to um, to know, okay, there's exorcisms going on or something. Yeah, uh, and that's been an interesting source of conversation as well that I've had with a couple of scholars on this show about the rise in exorcism and the rise of charismatic religions around the entire world, especially in like the global south. It's been a really yes. interesting trend to follow. Um, do you have any like specific stories or examples that you can share about any time like in the Midwest in the U.S. or in Missouri with regards to charismatic religions? I know you've been to the Midwest in my home state of Missouri. Is there any like examples or intriguing details about charismatic religions you can share about what's going on in places like that? Yeah, so um, I was in Springfield, Missouri last fall, and um, I went to a local church a couple of times. It's a mega church, so um, 2,000 plus um, people worshiping every Sunday. Um, and it's part of the Assemblies of God, which is the largest Pentecostal denomination in the U.S., but it's de-emphasizing that part of its identity, and it's calling itself not Pentecostal, not Assemblies, it's calling itself Charismatic. So um, it's doing that to attract a larger number of people. And there were a lot of young people there, students that looked like young adults, uh, mostly white, uh, middle class, um, from what I could judge from just my participant observations on three or four um, occasions. 
And something that really stuck in the back of my mind and that I want to incorporate on my research on charismatic religions is one worship service where everyone was asked to um, open their hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit um, and to begin speaking in tongues. Now, that's not something that you would think that the pastor says, now is the time to speak in tongues, and then it happens. So I was quite intrigued by this um, service that focused on glossolalia, and it was interesting to see how the pastor kind of initiated the ritual. So he said, um, you know, open your hearts and minds. Um, the Holy Spirit is here with us today. Um, he will work through you if you let him. You need to start mumbling to give him something to work with, and then glossolalia will come. But then he says, should it not happen, should you not have this experience this Sunday, don't worry. You might not be ready. The Holy Spirit might have other plans for you. This might happen next Sunday. However, the subtext was, if you're a good Christian, if you're a proper Christian, you are going to have this experience. So there is some pressure really on the people to have the experience of speaking in tongues. So he's trying to kind of orchestrate um, the event, the music, the lights got low and the music got soft and stuff. And people started mumbling in order to see whether they would begin speaking in tongues. But then he has this disclaimer, if it doesn't happen, that's okay, then it'll happen in the future. So this kind of concerted, orchestrated way of introducing a ritual that typically is um, in most services that I've been to, um, where glossolalia plays a role, that's a um, spur-of-the-moment, spontaneous event. That was very interesting to me, and I want to look at that um, with ritual theory, just because I think that that would be fascinating. Excellent. So have you observed rituals like that, where the pastor initiates it, that like like that in a doc context? Uh, no, I have not. Okay. So you also write how DOC is like relatively progressive, inclusive, and positions vary from congregation to congregation. You've mentioned the internal diversity of those congregations yeah. several times, which I think is super important for any religion. Um, what explanation did your interview participants give you for the progressive and inclusive views of DOC congregations? Did anybody, did any of your like pastor interview participants uh, explain this, or leader participants, I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, one reason for that is this emphasis on um, theological education, right? So if you get a Lutheran or even in Switzerland a Reformed theology, a degree in, 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 in theology, in Lutheran theology, say in Germany, um, you're learning systematic theology. You're learning compared to what you would be trained for at evangelical seminaries in the U.S. And you're getting a progressive view on um, uh, on theology and learning how to systematize um, the stories in the Bible and um, everything that's happened since that time in the history of the church. So I think that's one explanation for, for this more progressive, inclusive stance. Another particularly is um, that in order to survive in this landscape that's still dominated by mainstream churches, even if they're losing members, that's shifting. That's why I'm interested in this in this topic in general. But even um, if they're losing members, they still have a lot of, they hold a lot of the power. So um, being inclusive in that way and saying, let's work together and we don't want to steal your people. We want to work together with them because we think you're, we're interested in the same ideas, gives access to power and to, um, um, to resources that the vineyard, the vineyard dach otherwise wouldn't have. 
Excellent. So something I'm curious about for you is since you're a non-participant in these charismatic religions, how do you, um, what are some of the most challenging things that you face as a researcher about like accurately representing the views of the different congregations? Because the internal diversity is so vast, it feels like it seems like your job in this regard as a researcher is so hard. How do you go about that? Yeah, that's a good question. That's something that is very challenging and that I struggle with kind of every research output that I that I generate because it's always never representative, right? I mean, it can be tendentially representative, but you'd have to do a case study of congregation XYZ to really be representative in that way. Um, so what I've done so far in my research with Vineyard Dach is I've intentionally focused on the leadership level because that's where the most innovative activity is going on right now. It's still such a young movement. And I mean, there's there's more established Vineyard Dach congregations that I've done first like initial explorative research in the congregations, but mostly I've stuck to um, interviewing leaders, both of the association and of these um, established congregations of doing analyses of um, what Vineyard Dach is communicating on its website and what congregations are communicating on the website. So how is it representing itself or presenting itself, self-representing to the outside, um, both to the membership and to and beyond the membership? Um, in order to get a first grasp on what is Vineyard Dach at all, because no research exists. Mm-hmm. And in and in terms of my own um, position in this research as a as a um, uh, agnostic, I would call myself, um, that becomes particularly challenging as soon as you start doing ethnographic research in my experience in congregations. So as soon as people kind of take you into the fold and are also curious, I mean, you're curious about them, they're curious about you, how you're reacting to these experiences, how you experience worship, and to frame that in a way that you're respective of their beliefs, yet at the same time, um, can't maybe share in the enthusiasm to the same degree, that can be a little tricky. So far, I've met with the friendliest and kindest people, both in my research in the U.S. and here in Vineyard Dach, however, that that hasn't been um, problematic in, in, in like an everyday sense. It's just a question of how to justify it methodologically in my work. Wonderful. Um, so what are some goals you have for future work in this area? Like, do you intend to like uh, continue mostly in German speaking countries? Do you want to go to other countries? Like, what are what's what are some plans you have? Yeah, so um, I definitely want to continue working on this kind of dual U.S. and German-speaking countries of Europe focus. Um, I'd like to do more work on the vineyard. I put together a big research proposal last year. Unfortunately, it was rejected, so I'm going to revise it and try again. Um, I do have this strong interest and I'm not deterred if I'm rejected, if my proposals are rejected here and there, you know, I have a strong interest in how Christianity is changing in the early 20th century, both in the U.S., but particularly in places like Germany and Switzerland, because we have these established churches, like I said before, that still hold a lot of the power in public discourse in relations to political players, say, but they don't have the membership. So if we look at um, the number of people who are committed, um, active participants in Lutheran and Catholic congregations, One thing that I would love to do more research on is 
in how far that number maybe compares to the committed and active members in evangelical free church independent congregations who are numerically so much smaller than um, these mainstream Christian players, but maybe they're not so different after all in terms of how many people are really active. Maybe we've got kind of a core of very active Christians in the early 21st century that's a lot smaller than membership statistics would suggest, because the way that it works in Germany is um, automatically you become a member of the, say, Catholic Church if your parents are members, and you pay taxes so um, they get deducted from your paycheck until you formally leave the church. Even if you never go to worship service, if, even if you've never been exposed to the Catholic Church in your life at all, if you're a member on paper, then you appear in the statistics. So there's this big disconnect between membership on paper, but then actual practicing involved committed members. Excellent. Sounds fantastic. Well, um, Dr. Marin Freudenberg, uh, where can listeners who might want to read these papers or find you if they want to ask any follow-up questions, where might they find you? So um, I would suggest my website, um, which is if you go to the Center for Religious Studies, if you just Google my name, Maren Freudenberg, it'll pop up. And it's my university website. So that's Ruhr University Bochum Center for Religious Studies. They'll find all the information there. Um, including my latest publications, the courses that I teach, which I also teach on charismatic Christianity. Um, and then also I'm an editor with Entangled Religions, which is an interdisciplinary journal um, for the study of religious contact and transfer. And that's where one of my articles was recently published. So in fact, the one that we've been talking about, Dynamics and Stability in Globally Expanding Charismatic Religions. So if you put in Entangled Religions, um, or if you put in my name and the Center for Religious uh, Studies in Bochum, then you'll find all of the information you need. And I do want to encourage listeners, if you're interested in this topic, if you want to be in touch, um, please do just shoot me an email and I'd be happy to, uh, to communicate. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a really wonderful uh, way to spend my, my Sunday morning. Thank you, Greg, for having me and for taking the time, particularly on a Sunday morning. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybick. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.